0: Hello, what's up y'all? Welcome back to another episode of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. This week's episode, episode number three, this is the third week in a row, I can hardly believe it. But anyway, this week's episode is called The One About the Yeast and the Seeds. Ooh, um. So, Last week, we talked about the Good Samaritan and how loving our neighbor and recognizing that everyone is our teacher and everyone is a vessel through which God's justice and love can flow through. Um, And today, we're going to be talking about another set of parables, the ones about the kingdom of heaven as the gospel of Matthew tells us. So, let's talk about it. Once again, we are going to turn to the Gospels of the New Testament for our material this week. Um, So last week we were in Luke, which was pretty um, heavily focused on how the message of love and mercy and hope applies to the universal body of humanity. That's sort of the um, narrative that Luke is trying to tell in his Gospel. Um, But this week we turn to Matthew uh, to what is called the parables of the kingdom. And Matthew has sort of a different angle than Luke does. Um, so one thing that we discover when we read these ancient texts is that each author has a particular group of people that they're writing to, um, and that audience shaped the material, um, including the way in which the narrative was written. Um So while, even though Matthew, Luke, and Mark share many similarities with one another, they are, um, and they are referred to as the synoptic gospels, um, which means like seen from a similar lens, seen from a similar point of view, Um, even though they're very similar and they have a lot of similarities, these ancient writings also have a lot of differences as well. Um, So as I already mentioned, Luke seems to have been written to like a general audience of non-Jews, um, and it has a really strong bent towards this universal message, um, of God's love and justice and peace and mercy pretty much for anyone and everyone, especially it would seem the marginalized. Um, that's why Luke includes, um, stories like the Good Samaritan, um, But Luke also includes countless other stories of minorities who take a central part in the work and ministry of Jesus, Um, namely those who are considered ceremonially unclean, um, Gentiles, Samaritans, women, um, which is a big step for the first century world. Um, These sort of minorities and marginalized peoples take center stage in Luke um Matthew on the other hand which is the gospel that we're in today has a focus group of what a lot of biblical scholars believe to be a very Jewish audience. Um uh, Matthew is modeled after the Hebrew scriptures which come before it. Um so the Hebrew scriptures are Genesis through the prophets through I think it's Malachi is the last one. I should know this I'm in seminary. Um pretty sure Malachi is the very last book in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, But anyway, Matthew sort of modeled after that. And you see a lot of references to the Hebrew scriptures within Matthew. Um, One of the most notable ones is the Sermon on the Mount, which is a really famous two or three chapter section of Matthew, which serves as like the inaugural teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew. So like Leading up to this, you have Jesus being born, and then you have Jesus being baptized, and then right after that, you have Jesus teaching at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus' own interpretation of the law um, that's found within the Hebrew Scriptures, and it actually resonates and has lots of echoes of Moses' own giving of the law to the Israelites on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, and um, in addition, the writer of Matthew talks a great deal about the kingdom. Um, in Mark and Luke, this is called the kingdom of God, and Mark and Luke definitely talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, but what's interesting about Matthew is that the author of Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Um, and one of the interesting points and one of the beliefs why this would have been written to a more Jewish audience is that there was a long-standing Jewish tradition Um, which claims that it's better not to use God's name, which is traditionally considered to be Yahweh, Yehovah, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So instead of that, they use different titles like Lord, Adonai, um, Redeemer, Liberator, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, King, they wouldn't use God's actual name as it's written in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, And the reason I tell you this is that the kingdom of heaven is precisely where our focus for the parable will be, um, which consequently is all about the kingdom of heaven and sort of our response to hearing the news of the kingdom. Um, So first we're going to talk about what the kingdom of heaven is. Then we are going to talk about the parables themselves. And then, like last week, we're going to sort of bring this story out of its ancient context and begin to play with it a little bit in our own modern day context. So, the kingdom of heaven. Um, To talk about the kingdom of heaven as the writer of Matthew understands it, we need to go back a little bit into history, um, to the times when kings ruled Israel and Judah, um, and to the time of the Hebrew prophets. Um, One of the claims of Matthew and the rest of the Gospels is that Jesus is the Messiah. In some places, you'll see this word Messiah, which in Hebrew means anointed one. Um, In other places, you'll see the Greek word for Messiah, Christ, which essentially means king or like the Israelite kings of old, such as David or Saul, the anointed ones. Um, So this Messiah was not someone who the people of the first century just sort of thought up of on their own. Um, The tradition of the Messiah goes back to when Israel and Judah faced annihilation and exile from the land that they believed had been promised to their ancestors. Um, And I want to make a side note, sidebar real quick right here. Um, this is, that's not meant to be a political statement. I know Israel today and Israel, the Bible are two very different entities. Um, and there's a lot that goes into biblical Israel's occupation of the land of modern day Israel and Palestine. Um, most notable of all being that it was the Israelite perspective that we get from the Hebrew scriptures that claims that it's Israel's land in the first place, um, so, just to be clear, I'm not exactly sure where I fall on the quote unquote legitimacy of Israel's occupation of the land. Um, I think that there are many fruitful and interesting readings of the Hebrew Bible that um, include reading it from the perspective of minorities such as the Canaanites. Um, you know, these people who I believe were created by God, but they faced their very own exile and annihilation at the hands of the Israelites, according to the Bible. Um, So anyway, I'm rambling. Um, So this, between the 8th and 6th centuries BCE, um, Israel and Judah saw their kingdoms laid to waste by the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, um, which at the time, between the 8th and 6th centuries BCE, they were like the two biggest imperial powers the land had ever known. Um, So first it was the Assyrians and they, Um, went in and they took out the northern kingdom of Israel. They took over tons of land and then the Assyrian empire crumbled and the Babylonians came in and took over all the land that the Assyrians had plus some more and Babylonians during that expansion also took over Judah and exiled their, their people. And it was into this sort of context that the books such as Isaiah and Lamentations and some of the other prophetic texts were written Um, And, you know, as is common among people who are facing very dark days, there are people who wrote of a hope for a better future. Um, One of those people was the prophet Isaiah, who wrote of a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Um, And what that really means is an offshoot of David, an, an heir to David. And David, King David was sort of the prototypical savior of Israel. You know, he's the guy who led them to unprecedented prosperity and glory. He was the exemplar of what it meant to follow God's commandments. Um, Also, side note, when you're trying to legitimize someone or something, um, a really good general rule of thumb is to connect them with someone or something that is meaningful or powerful Um, For the people you are speaking to, um, for instance, Aragorn from The Lord of the Rings being the return of the king. He has like this ancestral um, family line to the kings of Numenor of old. Yes, I am kind of a nerd when it comes to fantasy stuff. Uh, The whole R plus L equals J theory from Game of Thrones, which, thank God, has finally been confirmed, um, just so you know. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Um, but, you know, like this idea that um, these important characters in these stories somehow, some way are connected with royal families of old makes them sort of these savior messiah like figures. And that's what the prophet Isaiah is doing as well. He's pronouncing this savior who's going to come from the line of David and be almost like the reincarnation of David himself. Um, So anyway, think um, another example um, would be, you know, like think how much people would fawn over someone who stepped into the American political limelight who was like this long lost descendant of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson um, who miraculously came and going off of what the American forefathers did, like fixed our political system or something like that. Like that's the kind of um, Messiah savior figure that Isaiah is talking about when he writes in Isaiah 11. And I'm going to read it to you now as is translated in the new revised standard version. Uh, A shoot shall come up out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Um, Side note, fear of the Lord is talking about like a healthy respect. It's not necessarily saying like, oh, my gosh, I'm afraid that God is going to zap me with lightning. Um, It's sort of like awe, reverence kind of fear. Um, Like, oh, my goodness, this thing is a lot bigger than just me kind of reverence. Um, Anyway. So this Messiah shall, um, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Um, The wolf shall live with the lamb, and leopard shall shall lie down with the kid, the kid being like a baby goat. Um, The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, um, the asp being some sort of snake, and the weaned child shall put its hands on the adder's den, another kind of poisonous snake. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, So really this nine verse passage is Isaiah imagining a future hope when a king in the same line as David, like the reincarnation of David himself, comes forward and ushers in a new era of peace. And this king is not going to be simply swayed by the tides and storms that crash around them. Um, They're not going to be swayed necessarily by public opinion or, you know, whatever else, but they will be deeply rooted in the divine spirit which connects us all to our true selves, to others, And the cosmos, they'll have a fear of the Lord, they'll have a deep respect for this thing that is way bigger than any of us. Um, And this ruler shall bring um, justice for the oppressed and marginalized. Um, This ruler will stand against and resist that which is destructive and evil, whether it be institutions, people, current events, etc., um, this ruler shall usher in an era where enemies are able to be at peace with one another, where no one is in danger of being hurt because all are able to recognize the same spirit, spirit which courses through all things. You see that in like this bear and the cow and the lion and the lamb and all these, you know, typical enemies are lying down together in peace and grazing together and sharing life together. Um, in other words, it's this image of utopia um, where harmony, love, justice, and peace are the driving force in the world. Um, it's essentially a new way of ordering one's life and world. Um, and this idea of the Messiah then informs what Matthew is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Um, And I just want to pause here because there are some interesting things that happened before and after um, that passage that I just wrote. So it's interesting to note that after this short passage, we see Isaiah claiming that the people of Judah will return to the land of promise. If to say when this messianic age is realized, then the true weight of the blessing of love and peace and justice shall be realized. Uh, Because for the Hebrew scriptures, inhabitants of the land was synonymous with the full realization of God's blessing. Um, In this case, the blessing is to live in love and peace and justice. In addition, um, it's really interesting that the imagery of the root, um, the root of Jesse is used to describe the Messiah. Because right before this passage is a narrative which talks about God pruning plants um, within like a quote-unquote garden. Um, And it's as if to say Isaiah is saying, like, even in the midst of darkness and seeming destruction, hope can be birthed. In the midst of the lopping off of bows and hacking down of trees, those are direct images pulled from the verses leading up to this. Um, You know, in the midst of things coming tumbling down, in the midst of a society which you thought was divinely ordained just coming crumbling down like the people in judah would have felt new growth and new birth is found end of side note Um, so throughout matthew we see time and time again um, jesus's own description of the kingdom of heaven being very much in line with this messianic age Um, the very first time that jesus is mentioned as an adult Um, because previous to this, it was just the infant birth narrative, um, is when John the Baptist claims that Jesus is the one whom Isaiah was talking about when he was mentioning the root of Jesse going along with the claim that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Um, Jesus, however, takes Isaiah's vision of hope a step further even, Um, While Isaiah claimed that the messianic age would come eventually and something that you need to be looking for and looking forward to, Jesus claims that the messianic age is here now. Um, Not only that, Jesus doesn't just say it's here now. He invites those around him to partake in the kingdom, to join in on the stuff that the kingdom is doing Um, Jesus' life and ministry in Matthew serves as an invitation into this kingdom. I'd I'd be willing to go out onto a limb and say Jesus' life and ministry in Mark, Luke, and John is also an invitation on what it means to live into this quote-unquote kingdom. Um, It's as if to say Jesus was saying, you know, you do not need to sit idly by and wait for a Messiah to just pop up and appear. You can resist evil here and now. You can be the vessel of God's justice. You can help the babe lie down with the lion and the snake. You are the ones who build the bridges needed for this. You are the ones with the eyes to see the divine spirit running through everything. and then. In Matthew 13, we get a lengthy narrative about a few different parables that all concern the kingdom of heaven. Um, And there are two in particular that I want to focus on today. Um, The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. And the reason I want to take a particular look at these two parables is because they have to do with exponential growth. Uh, But before we can get to these, we need to look at the buildup before them. So, uh, Matthew 13 is sort of a series of seven different parables that all have to do with the kingdom of heaven. Um, so up to this point in the chapter, um, the mustard seed and the yeast fall about halfway through chapter 13. Um, so up to this point, Jesus has been likening the kingdom of heaven to farming analogies, which given that much of his ministry was in rural areas of modern day Israel and Palestine, um, that would have made a lot of sense to his listeners. Um, So first we have a parable of the sowers and the parable of the weeds. And these two parables are really getting at the idea that the kingdom of heaven is something that is planted. It's not just something that appears, but it's something that needs to be tended to. And it's something that we actively plant ourselves. Um, It's something that we actively participate in putting in the ground. Um, When the seeds meet the fertile soil, then they grow rapidly. Um, we also get a parable about weeds being planted in with the kingdom, and yet it is the kingdom that will prevail over the weeds. The weeds in this case symbolize evil, destruction, empire, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The weeds basically symbolize that which needs to be resisted. Um, these are things like the corrupt social structures of our world, the imperial practice of oppression of others, the dehuman. The dehumanization of others, the mistreatment of our planet, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, Then we get our two parables about mustard seeds and yeast. And what these two parables symbolize is that the kingdom of heaven is something that exponentially outgrows its original shell to seep into all of its surroundings. Um, The mustard seed is a tiny seed, which while it doesn't grow into a massive tree like an oak, is still significantly larger than the seed which was originally planted. Um, not only that, Jesus goes on to say that the mustard sh- tree becomes a haven for birds to make nests in its branches. Um, Jesus is essentially saying that the kingdom of heaven here grows exponentially bigger than what it started as, and it provides for the needs of those around it. Um, the same thing with the parable of the yeast. The yeast is mixed in with flour, um, and the flour sub use the yeast to the point where you can't even find the yeast if you really tried. It's as if the yeast disappears. It's buried like a seed. Um, It's hidden, but in its buried and hidden state, the yeast leavens the entire bread, and the yeast is mixed in with its surroundings, and it helps its surroundings grow. Um, Oh, and by the way, it doesn't just grow into this lump of dough that's left alone but it grows into a loaf of bread which then goes to sustain people when we enter into this invitation of the kingdom we enter into the invitation to live in love justice and peace now Um, and when we do this we find not only ourselves growing in love justice and peace but the people around us begin to grow as well Um, so for example Um, When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to work at a local summer camp that I had grown up going to as a kid. And when I personally look back on the reasons for taking the job there, it wasn't because I was getting paid a ton, because I definitely wasn't. It was not because my sister and brother worked there, as though they did at the time. Um, It was not because I had friends who were going to be working there. Uh, You know, most high schoolers you think of over summer break just kind of shooting the breeze, hanging out with friends, playing video games, uh, maybe working at a local McDonald's so they can afford the new Xbox or, you know, whatever. I didn't do any of that with my summers in the second half of high school. Um, I decided to apply at the summer camp because I personally felt the love from that place affect my own life profoundly. As a child and I wanted to share that love with others. Um, the same goes for some of my co-workers at the residential treatment facility or RTF um, for at-risk youth that I worked out right out of college for a few months. Um, there were quite a few employees who worked at this RTF solely for the reason that they themselves were in an RTF as a kid And they wanted to give back to future generations. They had felt the keen and profound impact of this institution on their own life, and they wanted to give that to others. Um, even now, I'm speaking into this microphone, producing a podcast, because I personally have felt the profound gift of podcasts within my own life, from people like Rob Bell and Richard Rohr and John Philip Newell and Elliot Morgan and Pete Rollins and so, so, so many others. Um, you know, I felt that gift helped me to grow, and I want to pass that gift on In whatever capacity I can Um, that is the work of the kingdom that is the seed being planted buried hidden in the dust and the dirt that is the yeast being mixed into the dough Um, it may seem like a small thing but when it's given and received exponential growth happens And I'm sure I'm not the only one who has listened to a spiritual or religious podcast like Krista Tippett or, you know, so many of these other wonderful, wonderful podcast artists and thought to myself, you know, I could and should do this for others. Even after these two parables of yeast and seeds, we see Jesus sharing three more parables that talk about the treasure that is the kingdom um, it's found within the treasure of a hidden field, within a pearl of great worth, within a bountiful harvest of fish, which again, side note, symbolize, symbolizes the diversity of everyone and every nation in the world. Um, you know, when Matthew writes in chapter 13:47 that... A net was thrown down into the sea and caught every fish of every kind. This is a symbolic way of saying that the kingdom is found everywhere in the world, no matter nation, culture, heritage, race, or I would even go so far as to say, no matter your religion. Um, By participating in the love, justice, and peace of the kingdom, not only do we grow And those around us grow, but we also cast out that which is evil and destructive in our lives as well. Um, Jesus says that the weeds will be separated from the good harvest in the parable of the weeds. Um, Jesus also claims that the bad fish will be tossed out of the baskets. Um, That is to say, that which is evil in this world, the destructive social systems of oppression that are driven by greed and the lust for power and money, those things will be cast out. Um, when we participate in the kingdom of heaven, those things don't hold sway anymore. Um, they can no longer coerce us because we are not viewing the world around us as a game to be played or a tribal warscape or a world of scarcity and lack. Instead, we view others with human dignity. We are focused on living a life of love and justice and peace for both ourselves and for others and also For our world, we no longer are held sway to the currency of gold and dollar and power because, in the kingdom of heaven, the only currency that truly matters is our shared life with those around us. So, how does this translate into our own life then? Um, I want to focus on three words that I've said a couple times in this podcast already. Love, justice, and peace. I think that's what these parables about the kingdom of heaven are getting at. I think that's what this messianic vision of a future hope is getting at, is the ideas of love, justice, and peace. So the first part comes in loving others. Um, and we've touched on that last week. Um, we touched on recognizing the worth of ourselves, others, others and the world around us as an important aspect um, of what it means to be human, but it's also an important aspect of the kingdom of heaven. You know, the wild, messy, infinite love of it all is something that we have to tap into. Um, You know, basically what we've been talking about the past two episodes. Um, So, shameless advertisement. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes of the podcast, please go and check them out. Uh, Because they talk a lot about what it means to love others. Um, um, Second is seeking justice. And this seeking justice for me is really intimately tied with the opposition of empire or the principalities, as some may call it. Um, within the biblical text, we see time and time again, the people who are being the vessel of God's love and justice speaking out against the sins of empire, whether it is Moses, whether it is the Hebrew prophets, whether it is Jesus or Paul, or even John on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation, which is a beast unto itself. And we're not going to delve too far into that with this episode, um, but this, these sins of empire are things like um, lust for power over others, lust for wealth, um, the, the oppression and enslavement of others, violence, warfaring, um, you know, this kind of stuff. Think about the colonial empires of Europe and see the awful things that these imperial machines did to the indigenous people of the tribes of the continent of Africa, or of the indigenous people of the Americas. That is the sin of empire. The oppression of others, the wielding of power over and against others in order to better one's own self or country, um, often by means of violence and coercion. Um, Oppressing others so that one's purse might be more full of gold. Does that remind you of anything? Uh, Because it should. Our country fought a civil war over this very practice. Even today, we partake in systems that continue to oppress others so that the profit margin can grow. Um, Just look at the sweatshops and the awful working conditions of the factories that produce our clothing overseas. Um, To seek justice, to oppose the sin of empire, we must resist those things that continue these systems of oppression and dehumanization in order to make a buck or in order to maintain coercive power over another human being. Um, We must resist toxic masculinity that belittles things like the Me Too movement. We must resist buying into an economic system that says our need for cheap shit outweighs the basic human needs of people who live overseas. We must resist systems that continue to say that people who aren't white or who aren't male, are lesser. We must resist the extinguishing or steamrolling of our diverse communities. We must resist the economic machine that continues to take advantage of and destroy our planet. To name but a few, we must resist. This resistance of empire is the call to justice for the kingdom of heaven as we see it portrayed within the messianic age of Isaiah, but also within the life and ministry of Jesus. It's not a life. Isn't a game of gathering more and more stuff than others or being stronger than others or, um, life isn't us versus them at all. Um, this tribal game that so many of us play is a farce. It's, pointing away from the shared reality that we all have. Um, And this shared reality pushes us not only to see where our brothers and sisters are being oppressed or persecuted, but it also pushes us to rectify it because we share the same spirit of love, which tethers us all together. Um, To quote the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians, if one member of the body suffers, then all suffer together with it. We all, everything within this world, are part of one body. And when one member of our body is suffering, we're all suffering with it. Just as I am worth, worthy of human dignity and respect, so too is everyone and everything on this planet worthy of human dignity and respect. Thirdly, we must seek peace. And when I speak of peace, I speak of the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. Um, As a matter of fact, I have this word tattooed on my arm and what it means is more than just being a pacifist or someone who seeks deliberation and compromise above all else. um, You know, while these things such as pacifism and seeking compromise, I think are intimately tied to what it means to seek shalom, what true shalom means is wholeness and restoration. It is the peace of letting your muscles relax after taking a deep, centering breath. It is the feeling of contentment. It is the feeling that all is right. It is harmonious. It is good. It is as it should be. That's what seeking peace looks like. It involves centering oneself in the divine spirit, which we are all sharing. It is viewing the world as a whole rather than separate parts. Um... One of my f- favorite images of this um, is that of the Hindu image of Brahman, um, who's sort of like the creator, all father, divine entity from which all things flow from. And in the Hindu religion, it's believed by some that all humanity bears a part of Brahman within themselves. And the goal for human life then is to return. To Brahman, return to the source of life itself. Um, while the cycle of karma blocks this, when one reaches enlightenment and achieves what they call moksha, they break the cycle of reincarnation, and the peace of Brahman, which existed within their mortal bodies, rejoins the divine source, much like a raindrop returning to the ocean. In this view, it's not about eternally reincarnating. It's not about eternal life or getting a better life than one already has. It's all about returning to the one centering spirit which is shared by all people and all things. That is the wholeness that I'm talking about. It's using one's life and eyes to see the world in a different light. It views people in the world as not something that is other than me or something to be coerced or something to be subjugated. It is the ability to see the world in all of its interconnected yet diverse beauty. When we love others, when we resist the evils of empire, when we strive for justice, then we see the wholeness of it all, the the peace of it all. And these parables we have looked at today teach us when we partake in this kingdom of heaven by seeking love, justice, and peace, we are like the yeast in the bread or the seed that has been buried in the ground. Even in the midst of trees being hacked down around us and bows being lopped off, even in those moments when things seem most dire and chaotic, even when... The government has been shut down for nearly a month and there is massive amounts of uncertainty churning around our president and the special counsel's investigation or even in the face of the racism that still haunts our lands and people continues to rear its ugly head. Or whatever darkness we might find ourselves facing, even in those moments, the seeds can be planted and the yeast can be spread throughout the rest of the flower. Even when it seems to be suffocating and there's not anything good that can actually feasibly happen from our continued efforts, even then the kingdom grows. And I would even argue when it gets darkest, that's when the kingdom grows the most rapidly. So may you, my brothers and sisters, be seekers of love and justice, and peace. May you be the yeast and the mustard seed of your community so that you and those around you may continue to grow in love and peace and justice as well. Peace and love, y'all.